Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Tyler. I am kind of like a youth pastor, I guess, and uh, have some news for us this morning. And, and uh, the news is that we are actually almost, we're nearing the end of this particular series. Um, so if you've, if you've come in at partway through this, uh, or whether you were with us at the beginning, we've been kind of journeying through the life of David. And there's only a few weeks left of this. So uh, we've got a, a few last things about this person of David in, in scripture that we want to learn about, that we want to unpack. And, and actually that's kind of what uh, sparked the beginning of this message for me is uh, just thinking through, I was asking myself the question, why is David so famous? Uh, Bible David. I don't know if you have like a coworker David who's famous, but uh, why is this David such a big deal to, to begin with? He's in a significant part of our Bible, uh, which by the way, if you need one of those this morning, our team can get you one, just, just raise your hand. Um, so why is, why is David so famous? I was thinking through a few different things, maybe three reasons why he stands out as one of the characters in scripture. Uh, one is just that David and Goliath is a cool story. Right, like that's, and we, we spent a lot of time with that earlier. Uh, that's a sweet one. You can put it in a kid's book and make money. Uh, it's a great story. Number two, out of kind of this, this little deeper, this deeper meaning of, of actually where God came in and chose David out of a lot of different people, out of a lot of families. There were, in fact, even other potentially more qualified leaders at the time. And we've got this moment in scripture where God just chooses David and, and makes a covenant with him and makes promises with David. And so I think that would be some of the, the Bible's own reasoning why David kind of stands out as a, a main character in scripture simply that God chose him. And then there's a third reason, uh, I think why uh, David is so famous, and, and from a human standpoint, he's a bit of an all or nothing kind of guy. Some really extreme highs and some super extreme lows. Uh, so maybe some of you guys can relate to that. You go big or go home type people. Uh, relate to that. Or for others, maybe if you don't like to rock the boat so much, that is not you, but at the very least, it's interesting. Right? David does interesting things throughout his life, whether they are uh, full of passion and success or whether they make us question why it's even in the Bible. But David's life also uh, seamlessly continues where we left off last week. I was telling Pat this uh, late, late this week, re-listening to his message. Uh, I've been here almost four years. As long as I've been here, there's, there's never been, at least for me, what feels like a part two to a part one sermon as much as this does. I mean, I was just hearing what Pat says and looking at where we're going and, and there's so much continuation. Uh, so we studied last week, we looked at another really well-known story, that of David and Bathsheba, right? Second uh, Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And unfortunately, as the story of David continues, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and beyond through the rest of Second Samuel, it's, 
it's still kind of rough. <laughs> it's a bit of a continuation. It's a stark reminder of something Pat said last week that really stood out to me. Um, he said, you get to choose your sin, but you don't get to choose your consequence. You guys remember that line? That, that hit me really hard. You get to choose your sin, but you don't get to choose your consequence. Uh, and I did think that was... You know, kind of funny in, in student ministry sometimes we play a game which is like the opposite where we play like would you rather and the only thing you do is choose your consequence so we have people wander around the room and ask would you rather always feel like you're about to sneeze uh, or always have an itch that you can't scratch you know and crazy things like that and so but but that maybe not so much how life plays out and so one major consequence coming coming out of that particular fall from a week ago, uh, as, as we learn more about who David was and, and his life, one major consequence after the, um, the tragic, I guess, events surrounding his decisions with Bathsheba and what unfolded there and the confrontation with the prophet Nathan and even some repentance and moving forward, there is still the reality that after that, David's family uh, struggled. And man, there was a lot of struggle. And so much of the rest of 2 Samuel, and we're going to do, do a very brief overview here, uh, but, but a, a huge chunk of the rest of 2 Samuel is dominated by one main fig- figure, and that's one of David's sons, Absalom. So David has quite a few kids. One of them comes to prominence and it's his son Absalom. And one of the reasons Absalom is in a good chunk of scripture is because he took it upon himself to kind of uh, become a bad guy. And so he kills another one of David's sons and he begins to gain a following and he uh, attacks some of David's Uh, soldiers' strongholds, and he even gains a following and in a different part of the country sets himself up as a false king. He loves to be confrontational. And so there's this, there's this tragedy of things going on. We've got a few more events of David and alongside of that, we've got events of Absalom and, and there's even a moment where there's maybe reconciliation and forgiveness and Absalom comes back to the city where David lives and David doesn't speak to him for two years. And so man, there's just, there's just struggle. There's dysfunction. A lot of things aren't going well. And after all of that, as we journey through 2 Samuel and, and even turn into the book of 1 Kings, uh, we find that David has just grown older and older. And where we'll pick up this morning from 1 Kings chapter 2, uh, David has now become quite old. And we have an interaction uh, that's recorded for us in scripture between David and another one of his sons, Solomon. Now Solomon, you might have heard of. He's another large figure in scripture. And we get, we get uh, kind of David's dying words to Solomon here in 1 Kings chapter 2. And so this, this is just very different. This is a precious moment. This is kind of uh, David's dying words to his son Solomon. 
After everything he's done in his life, after all of the successes, all of the failures, all of the Psalms he wrote, all of the nations he conquered, all of the, uh, the backlash and outfall and, and dysfunction with his family, we finally have this here where uh, David wants to impart Solomon with a few final words. And so from 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 2, David says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And here's verse four. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So this is kind of one of those moments where, where perhaps death or the prospect of death brings clarity. And David wants to, to zero in and have just these, these final instructions, this parting gift for Solomon. And, and he talks about, talks about the promises of God and the covenant of God. And he says, obey God, keep your obligation to him, walk in, uh, walk in his way. And he reminds Solomon of a promise that, that God made to David. Now, a few chapters later, in chapter 8, one of the great accomplishments of Solomon is he builds a temple. And we've talked about that in this series a few times where David initially wanted to build a temple, a place where they'd put the Ark of the Covenant, where, where God's presence would rest with the people of Israel. And God said that that wasn't for David to build, but it did become uh, the key feature that Solomon did. And then this stood out to me. So I, I was just reading through um, just how, how this came about and what Solomon did as he builds this temple and, and as they complete it, there's a prayer. And so I wanted to read just a couple more verses from this prayer once Solomon finally builds this temple. It's an incredibly massive structure where, where people were designed to look and marvel, not at human accomplishment, but at the glory of God. And so in kind of the, the commissioning service, right? Solomon prays over this temple and what he prays in chapter 8, verse 25 of 1 Kings, he says, Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me, as you have walked before me. So that stood out to me hearing something very similar uh, three times. Something that David says in his words to Solomon. Something that Solomon prays a couple of times in this passage. And, and as we're sort of beginning to wrap up the life of, of David and we've seen some of the choices that that family makes and those that came after David. And yet in these, in these uh, parting words and in these prayers, 
Solomon says, well, part of the promise was if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness, and, and says again later, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. It doesn't always feel like they did that. Uh, It feels like questionable choices were made. And in fact, in this promise where God says, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel, what stands out to me is that that promise is actually both true and untrue at the same time. It's kept and it's unkept. So here's what I mean by that. Um, we're, We're looking at something where David perhaps has an obligation, God has perhaps an obligation. And so if we look at history, and again, uh, Pat actually showed us this last week. As we follow the history of David and his descendants and the people of Israel, quickly after this promise, there was no longer a son to sit on the throne of Israel. There were no more human kings over Israel from David's family. In fact, at one point, there wasn't even a kingdom or a throne to sit on. Israel crumbled because of decisions that uh, they made, because of a walking away from God. And yet, again, if we follow the history of Israel, and we come all the way to the first book of the New Testament, In Matthew chapter one, verse one, there's a genealogy that highlights the families and the people who came from Abraham to David and then from David all the way to Jesus. And the line was unbroken. Jesus Christ does come from the line of David. And we read over and over and over in scripture and we believe with our hearts that Jesus is that king who reigns forever. And so in this this promise, there's two things happening at the same time. One is that, well, at some point, actually, no, the sons did not sit on the throne. But at the same time, there is a son who sits on the throne forever. Amen. And so this is what has our attention this morning. What God promised to David and something that they grabbed onto fervently, appears both true and untrue. What David tells Solomon did happen and it didn't happen. (laughs) There's a way in which God accomplished that promise and there's a way in which things fell apart. And it turns out that God makes two kinds of promises. One's called a covenant. So I want to draw our attention this morning to to simply God's unconditional covenant and his conditional promises. God's unconditional covenant and his conditional promises. And this was actually introduced for us a number of weeks back. Um, Pastor Scott was preaching when we were in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God kind of proclaimed all of this over David in the first place, and that covenant was introduced. That was the beginning of when God said in the first place, there will be a son from your family who will reign forever and ever. That's the covenant God made back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There are these... 
and there are more like it in the Old Testament. Pivotal moments of scripture where God sort of appears out of nowhere to a person and says, this is what I am going to do for you and through you for others. There are these moments where God makes a covenant with humanity to display his faithfulness. And there's a sense in which, uh, as far as that is concerned, God's promises are unconditional. No conditions attached. Nothing you can do about it. In that our disobedience couldn't even ultimately thwart God's intention to be gracious. But at the same time, there are these, there's these moments, there's also this sense in which part of God's promises will only be released through the obedience of God's people. Now I think on a much simpler, smaller level, uh, we get this. So how many of you have like a family member? Does anybody have a family member in the room this morning? Okay, how many of you have a family member that you love? Does anybody have a family member? Now, have that, has that person ever done something where you've experienced this strange dichotomy within your soul where you feel, I love you, but I do not want to be around you right now. <laughs> I love you, but right now I just can't. Okay, whatever that is, you're experiencing just a little glimpse of this. There is, there is some sense of unconditional towards people that we love. And yet there are actions that they can do that will affect your behavior and or disposition towards them. Okay, true and not true, things happening unconditionally and conditionally at the same time. I think this is a true reality. It is also a very clear biblical tension, which fortunately is plainly displayed in the life of David. So he's gonna help us understand how God does this for you and what it means in 2023. Uh, so in David, we see both unbreakable, unconditional covenant and a conditional promise. There are a bunch of these in scripture. I wanted to grab one of each this morning to kind of take a look at as an example. And so I think in the life of David, as this plays out, an example of these things would be found both in the end of Romans 8 and in Deuteronomy 11. So I'm going to read these for us this morning. Uh, both of these passages are true at the same time. And I don't think either is all that complicated. But let's see what happens when you hold both of them at the same time. So here's Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. This is, this is a well-known one, right? This is like an Instagram verse kind of thing. You've heard this before. But, but the end of Romans chapter 8, and I think we have slides for this as well. But I want to read it along with us. Verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. An un unconditional promise right there. there. Paul is writing something that he believes with his whole heart. Something that God has declared. Something that is unbreakable. And this includes, this, this promise is available for us as well. 
It's an unbreakable promise. In fact, the whole point of this verse is to anticipate anything that might possibly be able to separate you from the love of God and say, nope, not that either. Not that, not that, not that, not that. You can't come up with more objections. There are no things that can separate you from the love of God. That's amazing. And in the simple reading of of the narrative, in, in what we've covered so far in the Old Testament, as we've spent a really close Uh, and personal look at David's life and his family, it does not appear that the entity of David and sons always followed the way of the Lord. It does not appear that they uh, obeyed every command every time very well. And yet, Jesus is king. They couldn't defeat that plan. They could not stop that promise from happening. They could not break God's covenant or his love for them. Does that make any sense? I, 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 hope, I hope this makes sense because we're going we're gonna to continue and add the second part of it here. Because we also see, even though David was forgiven, even though David repented, even though there was restoration, And we walked through that in incredible depth last Sunday. His family suffered because of his choices. There was damage that was done and he dealt with that. And ultimately others followed bad examples. And eventually the family lost the position of earthly leadership. So the other example of that, I wanted to grab uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 to 28. Uh, So this is uh, from the end of uh, the portion of scripture that Moses wrote over the people of Israel long time before David. But this is God speaking to the people. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Blessing and a curse. Uh, probably something that stands out in a question that I had, well, what, what is God's curse? He lays this out before the people. What is God's curse? Christians do not believe in karma. If you lie to somebody, God is not the one making your car run out of gas. God does not weigh your year or your motives and grant you next year accordingly. We don't buy into God's Uh, fickle response, flipping a switch, making your life easier or harder. So what is it? I think it's, I think it's fairly plain, but I I, I wanted to be sure. I looked at that word in Hebrew this week and studied that. And um, it's a fun word, by the way, it's klala uh, for curse, but it's not magic. It's not prince turned into a frog. The word means something causing misery or death. 
something causing misery or death. I think the curse is the natural consequences of sin. And on the flip side, the blessing would be the natural consequences of living the type of life God designed his people to live. The natural consequence is because there are rules built into the universe. Uh, God built them. (laughs) So I want to look at how this unfolds, how it can be helpful as we transition to where this theology kind of meets the road and, and what do we do with this idea to begin with. I often feel that Americans are in danger of overshortening and oversimplifying most everything. Um, and that's my people's fault, right? Like we took, we, you know, we didn't, people older than me invented like the microwave and things like that, but we took perfectly normal words and, and turned totally into totes and jealous into jelly and legitimate into legit. Like that's, I'm, I apologize for that. That's on us. Um, and the kids are still doing it, and I don't know what they're saying anymore. Um, but we've taken great words, and we've just made them shorter. We like, we like fast, and we like short. We like little. So an observation I've made is that there's, that kind of plays into who we are as people. There's a popular attraction to like little catchphrases about God which can be fine, but God is not little and God is not fast. And those catchphrases I find always are incomplete. So one example, a thing that that maybe you've seen, maybe that you've heard, a phrase like God loves you just the way you are. Right, there's a a tweet about God. Uh, Is it true? Sure. But it's not the only true thing that you can say about God. It's not even the most true thing that you can say about God. That's, that's the reason most of all why I think as a Christian it is important to always keep learning. Your uh, faith in God, your theology about who he is cannot be bite-sized chunks. It will not sustain. He's too complex. He's too big. He's too personal. Instead, Based on everything we've read so far, maybe perhaps these statements encourage you. So as we summarize everything we've looked at so far, try, try this. Is God full of unending, unmerited grace for you? Absolutely. Does it matter how you live? Absolutely. They're both true. So this is where I think all of this can help us, how this helps us live. Knowing a couple of things about God that are true, how should we live? Number one, with confidence that God is faithful. With confidence that God is faithful. So remember Romans 8 and that beautiful promise and that long list of things can't keep you from God. What I gain from that is that Christians don't need to be afraid. This is great. If God is for us, who can be against us? We didn't read that line. That's what kicked that whole verse off to begin with. That's, that's awesome. Uh, the way I tell my students this is that what God says about you is more important than what anyone else says about you. 
And in this particular instance, what God says about you, what God has declared over you is protection, identity, ownership, adoption over you. Confidence comes from that. On another note, uh, a line that has always captured my attention uh, when Martin Luther said as he began the Reformation and nailed the 95 theses on the door uh, in Wittenberg, he said at the top of that document was that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Now I do think that that is perhaps the one thing that David did best. And we've seen successes, we've seen failures, but David repented hard. And that might come from his belief in the unconditional covenant of God. Repentance. But, but again, if you live into that promise, you can repent confidently. Come back. Realign. Never quit on God. Turn from sin and turn towards him. He never quit on you. Gospel repentance is not uh, apologizing out of fear. It's tapping back into the joy that is ours in Christ. In the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance by Christ makes it easier for us to admit flaws, to come to him to repent and to admit we're flawed because we know that we won't be rejected if we confess our true nature, our real sinfulness. Our hope is in Christ's righteousness, not our own. So it's not traumatic to admit that we haven't made it yet, that we're not perfect. Somebody already knows you're not perfect and still hasn't given up on you. Why would you be afraid of them? How could that not grant you confidence? Not in just a be confident for this instance, muster something up and speak boldly, but, but a deep internal knowledge of who you are in Jesus that overflows into practical confidence. So that's the first one. I think a second might be to live with seriousness about righteousness. Which simply means a life moving less uh, towards, or a life moving towards obeying Jesus more and sinning less. That doesn't mean you do that perfectly. It means that is the direction that you are headed. So we've seen some of the, the mistakes that David has made. We've seen some of what happens with that. We've seen what repentance calls him to. Um, but here are a couple of examples. And, and, and what I mean with seriousness about, about righteousness, why we should sign up for that, it's because sin doesn't just hurt the heart of God, although it does do that. It damages life to varying degrees, a blessing and a curse. Um, an example that we're very familiar with of the natural consequences of life. If you drink too much, you are affected. 
You are physically affected. You are mentally affected. You are emotionally affected. But that's not all, right? If that is allowed to linger or depending on the severity, other areas of life become affected. Other relationships, other situations. That's not God calling down a curse on anyone. That is a natural consequence. Sin damages things. And its reach can be far. This has been, um, this has been a, a, a challenging week to kind of look at these passages and, and, and pull this idea out. Um, I, I learned of two of my friends this week that are about my age, have been married about as long as I have, who I believe their marriages are now over because of choices the other person made. And they are now dealing with the consequences and fallout of sin. It is real, it is powerful, it affects things. And so let's not stop right there. I think some people are tempted to stop right there, but, but, but the deep sin wrestling is not don't drink. <laughs> that's, that's not, uh, you know, don't kill somebody, maybe not be your, your life's uh, biggest battle the big ones, but the heart, the subtle, the deep, the heart sin issues are always the hardest one. Um, There are so many lists. I was looking through what Jesus had to say on this and I I grabbed one I really liked from Mark chapter seven. Um, but, But Jesus says to a small group, for from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within a person and defile a person. And I thought how interesting that it starts with evil thoughts and ends with foolishness means there's something in there for all of us. So deeper than the big, obvious, unchristian things, which tend to be more cultural than anything else, um, are subtle things, little sins that still affect our relationships, both horizontally with other people and vertically with God. And so I, I wonder um, one of the things Pat also said last week is, is one of the side effects of sin is it causes us to justify ourselves, to justify our behavior or our motives or the circumstances. And I wonder if people are willing to push past that, to push past an attitude of self that's whoops or meh or not that bad or well, you never know what, made me do that in the first place and beyond that but into I want to be clean I want to be rid of this I don't want to hurt people around me or unnecessarily distance myself from God what that might do for a family for a community for a church community So with a seriousness about our own righteousness, 
not somebody else's, your own. And then lastly, with a relentless pursuit of God's blessing. And it goes in this order for a reason. How do you, how do you orient your life? So while I truly meant point two, I think we should take sin seriousness. I think we, seriously, whatever. Uh, and while we should be concerned with removing that from our lives, avoid bad things is an incomplete way to live. It's not what I teach in our youth group. It's a bad and unbiblical cliche. It's right to want a good life. But as David advises Solomon, that comes from following God with your whole heart. And so as a blessing is promised, a blessing does not equal stuff. But a good richly rewarding life because of a close heart with God and health with others. So if our theology stops at I should love God, not do bad stuff, and should do good stuff, again, I think it's time to press a little deeper. When David told Solomon, he specifically said to follow statutes, commands, ordinances, and decrees he, he listed specific things that God has actually said. Things that are recorded for us in scripture. And so I would suggest that we pick. Pick something. Pick something and partner with the Holy Spirit to grow there. It's like if you want to become more physically fit and you're starting from zero, it almost doesn't matter what you do. If you do anything, there will be improvement. But as you go and as you grow, the specific areas that you're targeting begin to change and be more clear and you will adjust training over time. And likewise, as a, as a Christian who has both the unbreakable promise of the Holy Spirit and yet the ever-present reality of a sinful nature, there are things within me that become more clear where I need to focus. I was reading through so many areas of scripture um, this week where God gives us uh, a head start, just an idea where you, there's something to, to zero in on and say, let me, let me run with that for a while. Let me see if God can help me grow right here. Whether it's the Ten Commandments, which are action-oriented, or the fruit of the Spirit, which are a refined character, or verses like pray without ceasing, or offer our bodies as a living sacrifice in worship, as God calls us into deeper worship. Or in James, when, when it's written that pure religion is to care for orphans and widows, which calls us into earthly justice. Or as Jesus says to his disciples and gives them the commission to go and tell and make disciples. Or as he responds to his disciples that you should forgive not once, not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. He's given us so many ways where this is God 
not offering karma, more like a challenge. Try my way. Take what I've said seriously. Give it a try and see if you won't be blessed by how deeply you can know me, by what that does for your life. And so to recap, I think these two things that God holds side by side for us, one is an unconditional, unbreakable covenant of his faithfulness for us. And it starts there. It has to start there. That's on God. That's available for us. We can't stop that. And at the same time is this promise. Since I've loved you, will you respond in love for me? Cut out what is against my will and live into what is my will. Kill sin and pursue righteousness and be blessed by the relationship with the Savior. Let's pray.